Thank you, praise team, for leading us in our singing today. It's I'm so grateful that you're here today with us. I'm grateful for those who are watching on the live stream as well. Please turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians in chapter 2, if you will. 2 Corinthians in chapter 2. Holocaust survivor and author of The Hiding Place, Corey Ten Boom, suffered greatly through her time at a Nazi concentration camp. She was, of course, stripped of her dignity, and she saw many that she knew die, including her father and her sister, Betsy. Through it all, though, she believed that the Christian's highest calling is to love and to forgive because God has loved us and because God has forgiven us. She tells the story that she was speaking, which she traveled around and she spoke at churches, but she was speaking at a church in Munich, and she says, I saw him. It was the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower door in the processing center at one of the concentration camps. He was our first actual jailer. And he, he was the first one that she had actually seen when she was out, of course, out of the camp. She says, suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. So this man was at the church where she was speaking, and he came up to her at the end of the service, beaming and bowing, and said to her, how grateful I am for your message, Furlein, to think that God has washed my sins away. She says that, his hand was out, like she want, he wanted to shake her hand. And, and, and she goes on to say that she just couldn't do it. Like she, she couldn't do it. This woman, she would say, me, I who have been talking about the love and the forgiveness of God, I couldn't extend my hand in that moment. So she prayed. She prayed and just said, God, I can't do this. You have to give me your forgiveness for this man. She said she still tried, but she couldn't do it. But then she would say, I breathed this silent prayer, and I took his hand, and the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. Now, as we continue our study of 2 Corinthians this morning, Paul is going to highlight the need for forgiveness and love. And in this passage, I believe that we see several keys for Christian community. So would you stand as we read God's word together? We're going to begin actually in verse 4 for 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 through 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 through 11. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that he would not be outwitted by Satan, 
for we are not ignorant of his designs. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for these moments. Thank you for this text before us. And I pray that you would grow us in our love, that you would grow us in our willingness to forgive, and that you'd grow us in our pursuit of holiness in our own lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Church, the first key to Christian community, I believe, is that we are to pursue holiness. We are to be people who pursue holiness. And if we are gonna enjoy Christian community, it's gonna be because we are collectively and individually a church that is pursuing holiness. Now, in order to understand how this arises from the text, we have to know the situation that prompted Paul's words here. So we know that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians from Ephesians, right? From the city of Ephesus. And as he was there, he had, he had spent time in Corinth, and he left Corinth, and he went to Ephesus, and Timothy, one of his young protégés in the faith, had come back to Ephesus and told Paul what was going on, and, and, and so he wrote this letter, 1 Corinthians, there. Timothy comes back, and he says, look, it's even worse. So Paul changes his plans. He, he, he drops everything, and he makes this visit called the painful visit. We've talked about this past several weeks, right? And it didn't go well, because apparently a member in the church personally accosted Paul, so the visit was cut short, and Paul went back to Ephesus and he wrote what is called the severe letter. The severe letter then is going to give instruction as to what should happen in the church because they weren't listening at this point. Titus delivered that letter. Titus came back and said, hey, the church has responded well. And the apostle Paul then writes this letter, what we call 2 Corinthians, all on the heels of what is good news. So the question remains, what is Paul talking about in these verses? Who is Paul talking about and what is the situation that Paul is talking about? And the truth is, we don't know for sure. In fact, scholars are divided. Most of the early theories, most of the early commentaries and theologians all believe that this was referring to the man from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 who was involved with this incestuous relationship. And Paul was very clear about how the church was to deal with this man. To, to bring about discipline in order that uh, even cast him out of the fellowship so that uh, God would get his attention and that he might repent. Now, uh, it, uh, newer, newer, you know, more, more modern day theories reject this and they think it's somebody else, but they can't really identify who it is. Personally, I do believe it's the man from 1 Corinthians in chapter 5. I imagine that Timothy delivered 1 Corinthians, but the church was hesitant to practice the discipline that Paul encouraged them to practice. So Timothy reported this back to Paul, and Paul went, and he dealt with, he tried to deal with the situation, and I, I believe that it was likely this same man who was involved with this incestuous relationship who, who butted up against Paul, maybe surrounded a little posse around him, and they all pushed back against Paul and said, what authority do you have the church to tell the church to, to cast me out? And of course, those new leaders, the false apostles, the super apostles that Paul refers to on so many occasions, uh, they were likely prodding this man along, saying, yeah, you, you, you tell Paul. You, you go ahead and tell him. What, what right does he have? What authority does he have? So Paul leaves Corinth, and he writes the letter called the Severe Letter, and he gives instruction to the church, again, what needs to happen and the church does respond well to this letter, which means in part that they dealt with the situation, they dealt with this rebellious man from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Friends, whatever the situation was, that's what Paul is referring to when he talks about the punishment by the majority. 
Okay? So if, if this isn't the same situation as the man from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and it's something else, there's still some sort of discipline taking place where very likely the man has been pushed away from the fellowship, right? He's, he's in unrepentant sin, he's rebelling against God, and the church has excommunicated him from, from membership or fellowship in the church. So we would assume then that the church was following what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, where there was someone who was sinning and someone went to him and told him of his sin and he would not repent and he would not listen. So then other people came to him and talked to him. Finally, he would continue in his rebellion. He was unrepentant. So the church together made the decision that this man will no longer be a member of our church. And what this tells us, what all of this background situation tells us, friends, is that pursuing holiness is the key to Christian community. Pursuing holiness is the key to Christian community. If we are to enjoy and uphold Christian community, then we have to be people who are living like Jesus and loving like Jesus, right? We've gotta be committed to pursuing holiness, to living lives according to God's will and according to God's ways. What brings us together is our common faith in Jesus Christ, right? So through faith in Christ, we are one. But when professing Christians and church members live according to the flesh and live without repentance, friends, then we bring shame on the name of Jesus and on the Christian community as a whole. Not only that, what Paul writes here in verse five is that public unrepentant sin brings pain on the whole community, right? It's not just me. So now we're, we're really looking at two different situations here. We understand that the, if, if this is the man from 1 Corinthians chapter five who was involved with this incestual relationship, that, that brings pain to the whole Christian community, the whole church there. It just, it does. And then we would say, when Paul says, it doesn't, not just to me, what he's actually saying is, this is the one who accosted me personally, yeah, that pained me, but the whole situation here is hurting the whole church. There is pain, there is hurt for the whole church because of the unrepentant sin in this person's life. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, in chapter five, Paul likens sin to leaven. And he says that, well, you know what leaven does? It, it, it infiltrates everything and it, it affects everything, right? So it just permeates and it, and it leaves a mess. And that's what sin does in the life of a church. When, sin is un, when people are in unrepentant sin and it's public and no one deals with it, what can happen is that it can spread. It can encourage other people to be involved with sin. Like, oh, that's not big a deal. It's, it's, it's really not a big issue. It's really not a big deal. On the night that I graduated from high school, we were living in Hickory, North Carolina at the time, and some friends and I, for our graduation fun, went to a nearby lake in the city, and we went fishing. And one of our friends in the friend group had this idea that we were gonna play a joke on one of our other friends. Uh, several people drove out there, and we were you know, fishing for catfish and using chicken livers and all that kind of stuff. So, so one of my friends hid these chicken livers in the back of one of the guy's trunks and didn't tell him. And it was in there for a while, and you know what happens with a bad smell like that? It just permeates. It didn't just permeate the trunk. By the way, this wasn't my idea, okay? <laughs> it didn't just permeate the trunk. It permeated the whole car until he found the chicken livers in there, maybe a couple weeks later, and removed them, okay? Remove the thing that stinks. Paul's saying you got to remove the sin. 
You love the person, but we can't let unrepentant sin, unrepentant public sin continue in the life of the church. We can't do that. Christian community necessitates pursuing holiness. Christian community necessitates pursuing holiness. When we fail to uphold the life of Christ, the witness of the church is tainted and the unrepentant professing Christian is in spiritual danger, grave spiritual danger. So what this means for us as a church is that we connect collectively need to live and love like Jesus. Live and love like Jesus. As Colossians 3 states, by God's grace we must be putting sin to death in our lives and encouraging holiness in each other's lives as well. The second key to Christian community is to offer forgiveness. Right? So we have this whole background picture of what's taking place here and we should be pursuing holiness. But a second key here is that we would be people who are offering forgiveness. Let's look again at verses six and seven. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So first off, let me just say, anytime we talk about church discipline, what Paul is calling punishment here, we have to emphasize that its purpose is redemptive, it's restorative, it's seeking to bring about a a repentance to align one's life with Christ. Now, the reason that the church was to remove the unrepentant member, we're talking about members here, we're talking about professing Christians who are officially part of the church community, was to shock the person to the seriousness of his sin, his or her sin, we could say in this context, right? We wanna, Paul uses really strong language in 1 Corinthians 5, deliver that person over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that there may be salvation in the end, okay? So we wanna, we want the church to make this plan, excommunicate, like vote out of membership this unrepentant sinner who's involved with heinous and public sin so that the Spirit of God might impress upon that person's heart the seriousness of what is going on in that person's life. And as Paul writes, the problem with the Corinthian church, first, was that they were slow to address the sin, and then second, that they were slow to offer forgiveness and to receive that sinner, that that professing Christian who was caught in this sin back into the fellowship. That's why Paul is saying, look, God has been gracious. God has done a great work in the life of this individual. It's time now, because this person has repented, because this person has turned now again to Christ, it's time now to, to bring that person back into the fold, to show your love and to show your forgiveness to this person. Now, when we, need, when we think about forgiveness, we need to remember that it doesn't mean that we act like nothing bad happened, okay? Forgiveness doesn't mean that we, we act like nothing bad happened, or it doesn't mean that we now approve of the things that did happen that caused the need for forgiveness, okay? Doesn't mean those things. Forgiveness doesn't mean that the relationship goes back to what it was before whatever event happened, exactly, but as theologian Paul Barnett suggests, Forgiveness involves releasing one's mind from any anger or resentment harbored against another person. And I would add to that, it also means that we don't hold those wrongs against that person in the future. Now friends, when repentance is genuine, 
right? When someone genuinely recognizes their sin, genuinely recognizes that their sin is against the holy God and wants to turn from that sin, then forgiveness is essential. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 17, verses three and four. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, notice what he says there at the very beginning, verse three. Pay attention to yourselves. He's not talking about the person who is in need of forgiveness. He's talking about you. You pay attention to yourself. And if this person who has been sinning repents, then you forgive that person. Okay? When, when repentance is genuine, then forgiveness is essential. It's essential. Jesus isn't talking about the person who is sinning here. He's addressing the people who have been sinned against. Now listen, forgiveness is so important for several reasons. I'm going to name three reasons right now. First, forgiveness shows that we've experienced God's forgiveness ourselves. When we forgive, we're showing that we have experienced God's forgiveness ourselves. Ephesians 4.32 states, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. In Matthew chapter six, so many of you are familiar with this, at the end of Jesus' teaching on how to pray, right, when the disciples ask him to teach us to pray, he gives the, the model prayer, the Lord's prayer. Jesus says, look, if we don't forgive others, then the Father will not forgive us. That's serious business. That's serious business. Secondly, forgiveness models to the world around us that Christians are different. Forgiveness models to the world around us that Christians are different. There's something different about us. Because we have experienced the grace of God, because we have experienced the forgiveness of God, there's something different about us. Friends, anyone can hold a grudge. Anyone can be consumed with bitterness. But only the one who has experienced God's grace in Christ Jesus can offer genuine forgiveness of someone who has wronged them because we're different because our hearts have been changed we've been given God's heart God's heart to forgive friends forgiveness is the key to Christian community it's the key to protecting unity why because every single one of us in this room will stand in need of forgiveness at some point frankly we stand in need of forgiveness every day but as it relates to how we communicate how we relate to one another Everyone in this room will stand in need of God's forgiveness and the forgiveness of other people at some point. Forgiveness says there's something different about us. We've experienced God's grace, so we're going to extend God's grace as well. Now third, forgiveness is important so that the individual is not overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. That's what Paul writes there in in verse 7. Forgiveness is important so that the person is not overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, right? When repentance is genuine, it's so important to forgive so that the individual who has sinned but has repented is not undone by guilt and shame. No, we're to love them. That term translated overwhelmed means or could be translated as swallowed up. So that person is not swallowed up by excessive 
guilt, or sorrow. The picture here is of emotional despair. It's drowning in a sea of guilt. But what is the church to do? The church is to forgive. And not only to forgive, to assure the repentant person that God's grace is sufficient for them, that God's pardon is for them. We're called to speak truth to that one. That if, if, if the repentance is genuine, that, that they've confessed their sins, then God is faithful and just and will forgive them of their sin and cleanse them from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9, right? This is the ministry, this is the role that we get to play in each other's lives. It's a way to love. It's a way to encourage. God calls us to forgive and to seek reconciliation when we've been wronged. So let's humble ourselves and affirm the gospel in the life of this Christian community. Finally, I want us to see the third key to Christian community is to love abundantly. Love abundantly. In verse four, Paul tells the church that he wrote so that he wrote them this severe letter. It was tough. But he wrote because he loved them. He wanted, to, he wanted them to know how abundant his love was for them. Did you notice that Paul doesn't name any names in this letter? He could have. He could have said, oh, Joe, you better deal with him. He didn't. They knew what was going on. He didn't need to aggravate the situation by naming a name at this point. God had been working. God was doing his work in the life of this person. And notice too that Paul's not trying to make this about himself. In verse 10 he says, if I've forgiven, if I had any reason to forgive, right? So Paul's kind of minimizing the hurt in his own life. Yes, he was personally accosted, but he's trying to set an example and say, look, we can move past this. If I forgive, I've done it for your sakes in Christ. I want you to see that there is love that is to be extended to all. He's not making this about himself. Paul seems to have handled this entire situation in a way that communicates his great love for the church and his love for the individual that is caught up in this unrepentant sin but now has repented and is seeking to align his life with righteousness. So Paul's saying, bring this person back. Welcome. Should be, 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 be overboard in showing love and concern to this person. So verse eight's about, Paul begs them to reaffirm their love for this individual. When we lead with love and forgiveness, friends, we are combating Satan's schemes. When we lead with love and forgiveness, we are combating Satan's schemes. That's verse 11. Theologian Simon Kistemaker says, grudges and bitterness in the congregation are quickly exploited by Satan to undermine the church's spiritual health. He capitalizes on insults that remain unforgiven and unresolved. Deluding the people, he causes them to foster a spirit of animosity that divides and scatters them. Friends, Satan loves to destroy. Satan loves to divide. How many churches have been torn apart because of unforgiveness? How many friendships? How many marriages? But what if we loved abundantly? First Peter chapter four, verse eight, above all, keep loving one another earnestly for love covers a multitude of sins. 
And friends, loving abundantly is so much more than just offering forgiveness, okay? It's so much more than that. It's caring for one another when they're hurting. It's bearing one another's burdens when they're struggling. It's serving one another when people need help. It's encouraging one another when someone is down. It's praying for one another. It's showing hospitality to one another. It's building one another up in the faith. So, friends, the keys to community, to enjoying and protecting community, involve pursuing holiness, offering forgiveness, and loving abundantly. So where does this leave us? Well, it leaves us with asking the questions, today, are there sins in your life that you need to confess and repent of? If so, do it today. Are there people in this room or in this church that you need to reconcile with? That you need to seek forgiveness from? Do it today. Are there people that you need to love? Are there people that you need to seek to encourage or draw close to? Do it today. Why? Because Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 34, and 35. Jesus' love for us was selfless. It was a sacrificial love. John tells us that he willingly went to the cross. He willingly laid down his life to pay our sin debt. That Jesus willingly took the wrath of God, the wrath of the Father upon himself the wrath that we deserve for our rebellion. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, before we take of the Lord's Supper, I'd like for us to have a few moments of quiet reflection to consider God's great love and to thank him for his marvelous grace. If you did not receive the elements on your way in, there are some deacons in the back of this room who will have the elements. You just need to lift your hand and they would be very happy to make sure that you have some if you're participating with us. As always, though, friends, the Lord's Supper is a ordinance of the church. It is for those who are believing in Jesus Christ, those who are trusting in him. And if that's not you today, then we would encourage you, do not partake of the Lord's Supper with us, for to do so would be drink, to eat and drink condemnation upon yourself. During the time of quiet reflection, confess your sin to God, ask the Spirit of God to reveal to you any way in you which is unpleasing to him, and thank God for your church community and ask him to help you to protect it and to enjoy it more fully. In a few moments, we'll transition to the Lord's Supper.